I want you to watch a video with me if you would.
I don't know about you, but that is how you celebrate the birth of a king. I mean, don't, I mean, isn't that how you do it? You know, you have a celebrate. The king explodes onto the scene. And all of the subjects come. And they come to celebrate His birth. And they bow down and worship to Him. And they give Him honor. And they exalt Him. That is how a king is born. That is what we look for. That is what all of mankind always has looked for. That kind of birth. That kind of allegiance. That kind of glory. Yet I want you to listen to how the King of kings and Lord of lords entered the world. I want you to listen how Almighty God, the Creator of all things, Emmanuel, God with us, I want you to listen to how He entered the world. It's found in Luke chapter 2, verses 1-7. through 7. It says, At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, Mary his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. The King of Kings, Jesus, comes into the world. God in the flesh, God with us, comes into the world, and essentially there's no fanfare. Now you might be saying, well, yeah, the angels came, and they celebrated, and they told the shepherds. Yeah, look at who they told. They told the stinky scoundrels, which is how their world looked at them, the shepherds. There's no royalty here at Jesus' birth. He's not born in a palace somewhere. He is born in a cave, and laid in a feeding trough. In fact, they didn't even make room for him in the inn, in the home. See, today I want us to continue our pursuit of the hidden gifts of Christmas. We've been going through this for a few weeks now. And uh, in fact, we're going to go next Sunday as well on the hidden gifts of Christmas but today, I want us to pursue that. And today, we're going to look at three kings. Now, you might already know what Scripture I am heading toward. But to be quite honest, you might be surprised at what we actually see there. So if you will, turn with me in, in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bible, it'll be on the screen as well. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 2, we're going to look at three kings this morning. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And at that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. 
I want to stop there for a minute. I want us to look at these three kings. And so let me introduce you to the first king this morning. Now, maybe I should say kings, or maybe I really shouldn't say king at all, but I want to introduce you to the Magi. The Magi. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, you just said we're going to talk about three kings. So how are the Magi kings? When, to be quite honest, if you have your Bible there, you're looking at it, your Bible probably says either Magi or wise men. Some versions say scholar, but none of them says kings. And yet, for some reason, when we come to the Christmas season and you look on Christmas cards and you go to pageants, and you listen to or, or, or see videos about what's going on, you see these three guys that have crowns on coming to a manger, a, a, a stable, and worshiping the Lord. See, the reason we think of kings when we come to these three magi, and three really, we'll talk about that here in just a second as well, is because for for years and years and years, over thousands of different pageants, that's what they were portrayed at, and they were portrayed that way in pageants because of a Christmas carol. And the Christmas carol went, We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traversed afar. And that's all I know, so that's all I'm going to sing. <laughs> that's why we call them kings, but they're really not kings at all. And the truth is, there's probably not even three of them. Now, there could have been three. We just don't really know. Some look back and they think there were four. Some look and they see 12. But the reason we say three is because there were three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so we assume three gifts, three kings. But, you know, that's not what it was at all. There were three, or there were three gifts brought by the Magi. We don't know how many of them. In fact, we don't even know where they came from. They came from the east, which could be a whole lot of places. It could have been Persia, it could have been Babylonia, it could have been uh, Arabia. We do know that they were in some way important dignitaries. In fact, magi means they were priests and scholars. And in fact, we know because they were looking at stars, they were astrologers. More than astronomers, astrologers, those reading meaning into the skies which by the way if you look in the old testament wasn't even something in fact it was something god wanted us not to participate in but these pagan astrologers they find the star and they know a king has been born see they're part of the ruling class of their home and they come and they travel some estimates are over a thousand miles on foot, maybe on a donkey or a horse, maybe on a camel, but we don't know. We don't know. All because they're committed to find out about this king, this king of the Jews. Now, maybe they knew about the king of the Jews because earlier in Scripture, years and years and years before, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they're, they're in that same area. So maybe they'd heard about that. Maybe there's record of what Daniel had told them. But we don't know even why they sought out King Jesus. But they do. They come and they travel looking for the Lord. So that's our first quote king or kings that I want to look at this morning. The second 
we will find in verses 3 through 10. So if you read along with me again, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this. As was everyone in Jerusalem, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. A ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview with the wise man, after this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem and went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. As you continue through the, the story, as you continue through this birth of Jesus, the first Christmas, you realize that there's another king involved here. First the Magi are the king in our text, but then we also have King Herod. King Herod. And you can look at this text, and if you looked at no other text, you, know, knew, you knew no other information about Herod, you would know that Herod was a power-hungry and brutal king. Because when the wise men say, hey, where's the king of the Jews? Herod is deeply disturbed. Now, you could take that maybe because he's king and he's like, man, I don't want some other king coming on board. But if you listen to what it says, and it says, and everyone else in Jerusalem was deeply disturbed because they knew what kind of king Herod was. Truth is, Herod the Great, he was an effective leader, but he was a terrible man. He's a terrible man. He killed multiple family members to protect his throne, to protect his power. Not only that, if you were in his, uh, in his court and you started to gain power and he started to worry about that you might get some power and maybe go for a, the seat on the throne, he killed you too. So you also got to die because he did not want to lose his power. So here's King Herod in our story, and he is upset because the wise men come proclaiming that a king has been born, the king of the Jews. And so what does this king do? This king is manipulative. Uh, he, 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 he tries to pull information from the Magi. He tries to pull information. Where is this king located? Where is Jesus that you're talking about? which they didn't know it was Jesus at the time, but where is he? Because if you listen to what he says, I, I want to worship him too. I want to worship him too. This king who, who wants power for himself, who will go to whatever lengths necessary to keep that power. In fact, we're not going to read it, but just a little farther in our text, he kills all the babies in Bethlehem and uh, in surrounding area who were two years old and younger to keep his power. But he says, I, I want to worship him too. So we have 
King one, which is the Magi, and I know that's a loosely using term there, the king. King two, which is King Herod. But then I want to look at the third king this morning, verses 11 and 12. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it was when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream, dream not to return to Herod. The third king is Jesus, the king of kings. In fact, the third king is really the only king that we really need to worry about, at least in the idea of worship or the idea of authority in our lives. And I find it so interesting that the king of kings comes in humility. The one who has all authority, all power to do all things, who created everything, is the one who comes in humility. He's the one who comes as a child. He's the one who comes helpless and powerless, unable to talk, born into obscurity. In fact, St. Augustus says this, our Lord came down from life to suffer death. The bread came down to hunger. The way came down on the way to weariness. The fount came down to thirst. He so loved us that for our sake He was made man in time, although, uh, excuse, excuse me, although through Him all times were made. He was made man who made man. He was created of a mother whom He created. He was carried by hands that He formed. He cried in a manger in wordless infancy. He, the Word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. By the world's standards, no king at all. When they looked at Jesus, He was no king at all. But by God's standards, He is the perfect king. More than that, He is the only one who can truly be king. And He's a king who came to serve and sacrifice and save. Mark 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's how He came. An infant came to give Himself, to grow and give Himself as a sacrifice for you and me. And by the way, this king who came in a manger, who went to the cross, who came out of the grave, is coming back again. And when he comes back again, he comes kind of as a different king. He comes as a king who will be victor and judge, where his power and might will be on display. In fact, Revelation talks about how Jesus will return when it says this. Revelation 19 11 through 16, then I saw heaven open and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dripped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. 
From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want you to get kind of a, a juxtaposition here. We have two different kings that Jesus is. Jesus is the King victorious. But in Christmas, in that feeding trough, He comes as the King's Savior. The One who brings grace. But there is a time when He will come as the One who brings justice. And even wrath. The baby... The babe was laid in a manger. The child that stood before the Magi. The man who hung on a cross and walked out of the tomb is the real king. The king of all kings. This morning, there are three kings that are in our text. And the question that the Magi ask is the same question we need to ask. Where is the king? See, that is the point of the sermon this morning. Where is the king? Now, there's three kings in our texts. But where is the king? Where is the king? That is the question each of us need to ask ourselves. Where is the king? Or better yet, maybe we ought to say, who is the king of my life? When that news came to Herod, Herod reacted to the news of a newborn king with deceit, smooth talk, and eventual murder like I had mentioned earlier. The Magi reacted by seeking him out at great expense, immediately worshiping him and bringing him offerings. But the question is, how have you and me, how have we responded to King Jesus? How have we responded to the King of kings who has come as God in the flesh? Emmanuel, God with us. How have we responded to this gift that we are celebrating at this time of year? I just want to be upfront with you. I think every single one of us has a little bit of Herod in us. And we look at Herod, he is the bad guy. He is on the wrong side of things. And yet I think in our hearts we have some Herod in us. Because we want to keep control of our lives. We want to receive honor for ourselves. We want to attain power. This isn't anything new that we would be like Herod. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. And listen to what he says. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. We all know the rest of the story. She eats the fruit. Adam eats the fruit. 
Everyone eats the fruit. In fact, if it was you and me, if it was Todd and Susie, Susie would ate the fruit and she'd give it to me. <laughs> Notice it wasn't my fault. She gave me the fruit. Every single one of us would have eaten the fruit because we all have Herod in our heart. We all want control. We all want to be the God of our own life. We don't always say it like that, but that's the truth. Every time you choose to sin, you know what you're saying? I'm God. I know what's best for me. We all have a little Herod in our lives. Not only that, I think we might have a little of the Magi in our life too. Now you might be looking at the Magi and say, man, they're good guys. Look at what they did. They were so committed. They traveled all this way. They worshiped the Lord. They brought Him gifts. I mean, that's something to be applauded. And I would agree with you. That is something to be applauded. But after they bring the gifts, the last we kind of hear of them is they go home. Now, I hope they went home completely transformed and changed forever. I hope that is true. But I'm not so sure because truth is, sometimes we come to worship and we, we sing songs and when the offering plate goes by, we look at our wallet and if there's anything left, we give a little bit. But then we go home. We go home. And when we go home, what do we do? We go back to the way we always live. We go back to the norm. There's no real change. We just go home. We come, we worship, and then we go home. And sometimes the 15 or 5 or 10 miles in the car is way too much effort for us. And then we go home. John Ortberg actually does a good job of describing this concept. He says, when it was time to take our first child home from the hospital, we put her in the car seat in the back of the car, and then I got to the front, and then I got in the front seat to drive. She was so small, even the baby seat was way too big. She looked so fragile to me that I drove home on the freeway going 35 miles an hour with the hazard lights flashing the whole time. I was behind him yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you didn't want to, yeah. <laughs> he says that first day when your kid is in the car with you is a scary day. He goes on, does anybody want to know what the next really scary day is with your kid in the car? It's when they turn 16. And now you're handing over the keys. Now they move from the passenger seat, from the ride-along seat, into the driver's seat. That's a scary moment. It's a big moment in your life when you hand someone else the keys. Up until now, I've been driving. I chose the destination. I chose the route. I chose the speed. Speed. I've been in the driver's seat. But if we are to change seats, if you're going to drive, I have to trust you. It's all about giving over control. Whoever is in that seat is the person in control. And then he says this, a lot of people find Jesus handy to have in the car as long as he's in the ride-along seat because something may come up where they require his services. Jesus, I have a health problem and I need some help. 
I want you in the car, but I'm not sure I want you to drive. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my life anymore. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my wallet anymore. If I put him in control, then it is no longer a matter of giving some money now and then when I'm feeling generous or when more of it is coming into my life. Now it is his wallet. And it's scary. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my ego anymore. I no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered ambition no, it's his agenda. It's his life. Now I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. I don't get to gossip, flatter, cajole, deceive, rage, intimidate, manipulate, exaggerate. I get out of the driver's seat and I hand the keys over to him. I'm fully engaged. In fact, I'm more alive than I've ever been before, but it's not my life anymore. It's his life. It's his life. We come to this time of year, and in our minds, we see a child, an infant, laid in a manger. And we hear the angels singing and shouting and proclaiming his birth to the shepherds. And we remember that the Magi came, probably a couple years later, at least quite a few months later, but they came when they saw the star. And in our minds, it is such, the, it's such a, a peaceful and picturesque scene. I mean, it's calm and everything's good. And, but that's not it. Jesus did not come to be on the cover of a Hallmark card. He came to seek and to save the lost and to be Lord of our lives. That's why he came. And to be quite honest, a lot of us need to pull out the keys and turn them over to him and allow him to be in the driver's seat of our life. So where is the king? Where is he? Where is he in your life and in mine? 